0: and if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. All right, guys, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction with Ashton Cohen. I am Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by Michael Warren. He is a judge, a constitutional scholar. Uh, he co-founded a group called Patriot Week, and which is dedicated to teaching the Constitution and constitutional principles. His latest book is America's Survival Guide goes over some of the uh, topics that we're going to get into here as well. M- Michael, thanks uh, Thanks so much for being with us.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you.
0: Appreciate it. Um, I wanted to start off with sort of taking a, a, a macro view of the Constitution, then we could get more micro. The You're obviously a someone who would describe themselves as an originalist, someone who is a... Uh, Thinks deeply about the Constitution and constitutional issues and, and our framers and the original intention behind it. What do you see today as sort of the biggest issues, maybe potentially undermining the Constitution? What concerns you most as an originalist with, with respect to our Constitution and, 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 and the attacks on it and uh, any, any sort of issues that you see that are sort of undermining it?
1: Okay, so I, I guess I'd answer that in two ways. Uh, The first is that um, just general ignorance and complacency about, I guess I'm going to answer it in three ways, general ignorance and complacency about just the Constitution in general. Um, I just had a fabulous um, session with a bunch of eighth graders at a local middle school going through the Constitution. And it became painfully obvious that the students, uh, despite the best efforts of their teachers, really don't know much about the Constitution and how it's organized. And as a former member of the State Board of Education in Michigan, its uh, I've been following this for many years, and I'm uh, really just um, disheartened by the lack of civics and history education in our K-12 schools, as well as our universities. Uh, the first chapter of my book, which is America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our Founding First Principles in History. I know that's a long title, but America's Survival Guide you can find on Amazon or any other online retailer. Uh, I go through a series of studies about uh, the general ignorance of our population. And for example, uh, when I I wrote the book, uh, the studies revealed that just barely half of the people understood there were three branches of government. Uh, You know, it's not that hard, there's only three. Uh, there's the legislative, um, executive, and judicial branches: Congress, uh, President, and the Supreme Court, or the judiciary. And that's, you know, how are we supposed to survive as a free people if barely half of the people even understand that basic concept? Well, more recent studies have shown that less than half of the people understand that. So we're going in the wrong direction, and it's this has been a, a, an endemic problem for a, a good generation, if not longer. So putting aside. Jurisprudence for a second and the Supreme Court uh, and judiciary, just the fact that our general public um, does not understand the Constitution and our history is, is very threatening to our survival as a free people. That's what the book is about. So if your viewers are interested in that, again, it's America's Survival Guide. Um, the second thing is that there's more recently, it's always been a theme and a thread of of uh, our history were the people that have attacked our founding first principles. Those principles come out of the Declaration of Independence, the the rule of law, unalienable rights, limited government, the social compact equality, and the right to auto abolish an oppressive government. And uh, there have been people like Marxist and fascist and and others who have challenged those principles, but they've always been uh, a, a very, very small, tiny minority of people, you know, a large segment of the population uh, believes in the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. Maybe they do not understand it, but at least they accept those principles. And now there's the critical race theorist, a CRT. There's a number of others that are going at the heart of the, our founding, uh, not only just saying that our founders were racist, and, and some were, undoubtedly, but that our whole system is irredeemable cannot be uh, reformed in the 1619 project, others like that. So we've got those two streams that are assaulting um, our constitution. And then the third thing would be uh, what you started uh, with, which is uh, originalism uh, versus some other jurisprudence. So I do believe that, um, I believe in the separation of powers. So the separation of powers holds that the legislature should make the law that the executive should enforce it. And the judiciary should interpret the law when there's a conflict and resolve disputes. And if there is a uh, law that's in conflict or executive order or something else that's in conflict with uh, the constitution, the court has the duty and responsibility to strike down the law. The judiciary is not a set of enlightened princes, uh, self-anointed governors um, or a board of revision or super legislature that should fundamentally change the constitution. That's the role of the people. The constitution is the people's document. It was ratified in 1788, it's been amended 27 times. Uh, there is a process for changing the the uh, verbiage of the constitution and how it works. And that's the amendment process, or you could even call for a constitutional convention. There are, uh, and the way that you would adhere to that, uh, separation of powers and the role of the judiciary, in my view, is that you interpret the words as they were understood at the time that they were adopted and ratified. And you can discern that by um, speeches and documents that were um, used to us by, it doesn't have to be just by the proponents, it could be by the opponents as well, but what did people really think this document was doing, in light of the historical circumstances? If there's a special, a specific word that has um, kind of a term of art, what did that term of art? What did due process mean, for example? Uh, what did freedom of speech or free exercise of religion? What do those words mean? And then the judge should extrapolate from that to current day circumstances, because you know I'm not saying that just because there weren't wiretaps back and 1788 uh, or 1791 that we shouldn't uh, we should just ignore the constitution connection with wiretaps or cell phones we should say okay what are the underlying principles what are we trying to protect here and then apply them to current-day circumstances Um, so that would be my view of originalism or original intent um a, a there's several variations of that theme i i don't know that it's worth getting into it but my particular version is that what, what was the kind con- common understanding of the people that ratified the document because those are the people that that made it come into effect so you'd look at uh, not just, um, for example, James Madison who's the father of the Constitution and what he thought or, or john Wilson James Wilson or, or others um, that were important to Constitution Convention but you look at the debates in the ratifying conventions of um, Virginia and Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, what did they think when you're talking about amendments that were approved, um, what what did, uh, you know, those that wrote the 11th Amendment, what did they think they were doing the First Amendment and see the ratification process in the various states?
0: So uh, there, are, there are a couple of things I wanted to touch on that, that you mentioned I think are important. Um, first off is, so when talking about original intents, I like the example used about the wiretap issue, right? So obviously, our uh, framers couldn't have have uh, perceived or foreseen GPS technology, right? And so the Supreme Court famously said that you know you can't put GPS device on someone's car without a warrant, right? That's a that's a search and seizure that falls on the Fourth Amendment, and it's it's interesting because people will always make well people on the left will make an argument about particularly in respect to the Second Amendment. About um, you know well that was you know only applying to muskets they couldn't have uh, foreseen you know AR-15s or something like that it's like well they couldn't have foreseen you know GPS trackers either right and because we can go back and we can look at the principles which underlie these amendments we're able to say okay well would this be a unreasonable search and seizure to just be able to track someone's movements without a probable cause without warrant and and the Supreme Court I think it's pretty clear even if you're not a Uh, you know, constitutional scholar that that seems like an invasion of privacy that that requires a step such as getting a warrant in order to do. Uh, Also a
1: trespass. Right. Exactly. Who has the right to screw around with your car? You know, I Mm -hmm. never did understand the reasoning behind uh, the those decisions. But there was, as you pointed out, there were a number of circuit courts. So that's the, the court of appeals on the federal level, which found those To be perfectly constitutional Mm -hmm. that that operation. Thankfully, the Supreme Court came in and and reversed those decisions.
0: Right, absolutely. And with with respect to your view on what judges should be, what the role entails, there are people, so one of the sort of main dividing lines uh, politically is, and to make a, you know, generalization, although this is pretty spot on, right, so people on the right generally want judges to have a original interpretation, stick to the constitution, what it intended. People on the left generally want judges to be almost like super legislators, right? Putting their own opinions as to what the law should be. Why why is that why is that bad? Why is that dangerous to have judges act like legislators and and insert their own opinions? Um uh, of of how the law ought to be, not what the Constitution
1: says. Well, um, I think there's a couple of reasons. First, is that um, that's not the role of the judiciary. And so, um, you know, to, to flush this out, you have this uh, one perspective that views um, the role of the judiciary to continue with the evolution or the spirit of the Constitution and that they're supposed to, in one sense, nudge along constitutional theories to come to outcomes which they think are just. And so they, they believe that you know because it's a constitution it's narrowly drafted and because there were some injustices at the beginning of the founding that they should be able to um, use the constitution in a way that uh, re- results in an outcome that they appreciate. Um, and, and think is best for the country. And, um, th- but that is not the role of the judiciary. The, the, it doesn't say, and the constitution is very quick on the Supreme Court. It just says the judicial power is vested in the Supreme Court. Well, the judicial power does not mean the legislative power. And when you give, especially in the federal system, these people, it's the best job in the world ever. They're appointed for life. They're unaccountable to voters. They um, they can't be fired unless they're impeached, and it's extremely difficult to do that. Their salaries can't be reduced while they're in office. They're very insulated, which was the point of all those things insulated from political passions of the day. But the downside has been there's been an arrogance. Uh, some people call it black robe disease, where they believe, well, you know, I I have I'm smarter than the Congress. I'm smarter than the local judiciary um, or uh, local legislatures and local judiciaries. I'm elected, for example, so I, there's there's some accountability between my decisions and, and the people. I also have a judicial tenure commission, which is if I go off the rails and I'm corrupt, uh, they can boot me out of office. Uh, you know, The Supreme Court doesn't have any of those checks other than impeachment. So I think there's this temptation um, and it's exemplified in, in Judge Bork's book, *The Temptation Tempting of America*, where there's people that are good-hearted. They want to do good. They see they have the power to do good. If only they can get five votes on the Supreme Court to do the good, and then they convince themselves in a number of ways that um, you know the, the ends justify the means. And but the problem is is that subverts the the little d democratic process and little r republic because the lawmaking is supposed to be vested with the the congress and then of course the president can sign or veto legislation and so those branches are accountable to the people so if they make decisions that are unwise or unpopular they can get swept out of office and replaced that is not the case with the appointed for life judiciary. So when they make decisions, um, and I'm not going to take a position on the decision, but Roe versus Wade was very controversial. Um, And and we're still fighting over Roe v. Wade. I mean, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later. Uh, When you have these extremely controversial positions that are staked out by the Supreme Court, the only way to undo that is either amend the Constitution, which is extremely hard, or reverse the decision. And then if they reverse the decision, then it looks like they're playing politics, even though they may have been playing politics the first time around. But then if they reverse it, then it looks even worse. And so there's all these institutional barriers from reversing what a decision that should never have been made. And again, I'm not saying that's Roe, but just some people do make that argument. So. Um, There are, uh, you know, by by allowing the judiciary to become that super legislature or making decisions outside of the public accountability, it undermines the social compact. The idea of the social compact is we create a government to protect our rights. We have to consent to the government and and the government has certain duties for us uh, that they have to fulfill like protecting us and protecting the borders and all that kind of stuff. And when you have a judiciary that comes in and usurps their role, they're pulling out the consent lever, the very, very key important element of the social compact, because there's no consent to the judiciary making that decision if they're going outside of the bounds of the Constitution. And uh, and that's why it's, it's so corrosive and corrupting to allow um, what some people would call judicial activism, but uh, decision-making that's ungrounded from the true meaning and historical understanding of the Constitution. And just to give it um, a little bit better fleshing out, I want you to think that you're, um, let me pull this out here. So we've got, I don't know if you can see it. So let's say that's the football field, right? And um, we have uh, a controversy and um, there's not always a super clear answer even with the history and the, 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 um, the reviewing of the various documents or whatever. So you have this controversy and it's at the 50-yard line. And you might say, OK, it can come over here, over here. There's some there's play in here. Some founders thought this, some founders thought that. The meaning, public meaning might have been over here, but there's a, a counter definition over here. So, but you're playing within the, the 40 to 40-yard 40 line. The problem with the spirit of the Constitution and the, um, the unanchored decision-making is all of a sudden you get a decision over here. And you're like, that has nothing to do with this. It was unfathomable that this decision would ever happen because it's nowhere near the 40-yard lines. Right. It's way over here. It's on the 10, it's, a, it's in the end zone. It's off, it's off the, the field. And so that's where we have these eruptions that usually devolve into big, huge political debates is when you have a decision that's not in the forty-yard line, it it's over here, and then that undermines the legitimacy of the court. It undermines the legitimacy of the Constitution. It undermines the legitimacy of the social compact, the rule of law. Because it's supposed to be, a, 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 we're supposed to follow the law, not uh, personal predilections. And it just looks like the court is um, is playing games. And we, every generation or so, we have at least one of these decisions that go boop, over here and everybody throws up their arms and what is going on and there's cause to impeach and all this. So I would, that is not principal decision-making that's policy-making when you're, when you're out of here. So like the wiretap example, you know, you, you might have a fight in here and you could say, yeah, it's constitutional. Yeah, it's not, but you're fighting within this range. It, it would be like saying, and now everybody is entitled to a free cell phone from the federal government. That would be over, you know, right. It has no correlation to what's going on in the field.
0: So, so speaking of stepping away from basically the intention of the Constitution and, and what the framers intended, there is, well, there's a recent news story that's that's been uh, making the rounds about, say, uh, the Joint Chief of Staff, Mark Miley, who apparently, according to a new book by Woodward, uh, was speaking to his Chinese counterpart, basically the equivalent of, I guess, the Chinese Secretary of Defense. He's a Joint Chiefs of Staff, but he's speaking to the head military person, in China, basically telling him, according to this book, that, well, you know, if America des- decides to attack, I'm going to warn you first. And then he also told his subordinates that to report to him directly, not the President of the United States. So this is, this is a, a important story on two fronts. Obviously, it's... A complete subversion of the Constitution and what the powers are. Uh, The Joint Chiefs of Staff not even doesn't even have authority to make military decisions. It's the he's supposed to be an advisor to the president, who is constitutionally the commander in chief. Um, But more so, it seems to be the latest example of what some would term this notion of the deep state, which used to sort of you know in my ears be a a, a conspiratorial kind of thing. But it, with when it's applied to, meaning this administrative state with unelected bureaucrats who have significant control over people's lives, all these administrative agencies who are unaccountable to the people, administer insane amounts of control over people's day-to-day lives more so than Congress does. And them sort of subverting the will of, of the people through their democratically elected representatives. Is this not problematic? Or I I know you're obviously bound by judicial ethics being a a current uh, judicial officer or judge. Um, But is this how how do we make sense of this in terms of what the framers envisioned? It's a fourth branch of government um, that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger becoming more powerful, being uh, entrusted with more and more authority over people's lives. How do, how do we reconcile that with sort of the, the framers intentions? And if it's sort of out of the scope of, of what you know, our, our constitution is supposed to be about with the separation of powers and three branches of government, what can be done to sort of rein that back?
1: Well, that thank you for the question. It's, it's very um, important and um, I'll try my best to do a little bit of illumination while staying within uh, the rule of ethics. I I would just want to point out to your viewers and listeners that um, some of this is addressed at patriotweek.org, which is the organization that I co-founded with my 10 year old daughter. Um, And some of it's in America's Fiable Guide. But uh, getting to your question specifically, it's interesting because uh, the, the, the linkage you've made between the administrative state and this newest controversy is not one that I would normally have thought of on my own. You're the first person I've heard that from. And the reason I say that is because um, he's in the military and most people wouldn't think of the military being an administrative state entity or creature. Um, The constitution makes this very clear that the president is the commander in chief of the military. Uh, It also makes very clear that Congress is the entity that is vested with the authority to declare war. And of course, um, we now have a situation where much of the war-making authority is vested in the president through congressional acts. Um, And normally when there's a major commitment of troops, I mean, we haven't had a declaration of war since World War II. Uh, So 1941, it's now, uh, 2021. And um, we've had Korea, Vietnam, the uh, Gulf War, Afghanistan, um, Iraq. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, Iraq, right, right.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So we've, you know, let's, let's put aside the more what people might consider minor, like Libya. Yeah, right, right. Um, Panama, you know, and and other issues that we've had, uh, military strikes against ISIS. We've had these five, I mean, unequivocally major wars where there's not been a declaration of war. Now, Congress has instead used these other mechanisms to fund all those wars because the president doesn't have the ability to spend money that's not appropriate, unless it's appropriated, and, um, and they have done uh, authorization to use of forces resolutions, which have said, yeah, go into Iraq or go into Afghanistan. But it's not the constitutional mechanism that was envisioned by the founders. And clearly, the founders strongly believed in civilian control of the military. They would not have vested the president with that authority. And in fact, George Washington, who was our first president, of course, our second president, literally got on horseback. During the Whiskey Rebellion, and was going to lead, you know, troops. And James Madison also led troops. Uh, he was no George Washington, um, brilliant constitutional uh, uh, architect, but he was no military man. But he literally got on horseback uh, during the War of eighteen twelve when the British invaded uh, Washington D.C. So you know, we have not had, um, you know. Uh, Trump or Obama or, or uh, Biden uh, go off and lead troops, probably that's okay with the American people. But if you think about it, they could. And so, um, you know, so you've got that issue about commander in chief and did what the Joint Chiefs of Staff do, conform with or undermine the president. Then we have this other issue of this huge administrative state. And I think it is fair, I don't think there's any controversy over this, that the founding fathers did not envision um, a huge administrative state. They clearly believed that they'd be a, a small administrative state. Uh, for example, uh, various uh, cabinet members had a variety of different administrative roles even early on, out of the box, when um, when Washington put together a cabinet, you know that that is a tradition that's not part of the Constitution. Um, he, uh, the, the legislature, the Congress passed various laws to um, deal with um, trade and commerce and the military and the navy. And what what's and they literally actually debated these laws. They knew what were in them before they voted for them. They uh, funded these things directly. There was a, a chain of command that went straight up to the president. He was in charge of all the bureaucrats. That was the um, state, the administrative state that they envisioned. And now we have, know, uh, you go to Washington, DC. It's a beautiful place. Why is it a beautiful place? Because they take taxpayer money. They spin it around in DC, build office buildings, put bureaucrats there. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, that's just their job. They're bureaucrats and they're these huge departments. They have huge office buildings. And um, and the president does not have direct control over hardly any of these people. I think the last time I looked, there were about 4,000 positions that the president uh, had direct appointing responsibility over. And then everybody after that is somebody underneath somebody he's appointed, right? So um, there's a theoretically a chain of command. You appoint the defense secretary who appoints you know, the undersecretary of the army or whatever, or I'm not sure the bureaucracy, but eventually you get the people that are all appointed underneath them. And then the president's in charge of the top dog. So maybe somehow he's in charge of the guy that's 30th down in the list. Um, the challenge with that is it really does weaken this idea of the social compact where the people that are in the government are accountable to the people writ large based on their electing the president and the congress Um, and when you have these different levels of um, uh, insulation between the people at the top and the people at the bottom then you have uh, it's very hard to hold people accountable for decisions and every every administration has people that seem to go off the rails they get criticized they're yanked in before congress there's a hearing very few of those people lose their jobs right um you know, very few of them uh maybe they don't even apologize or you know and then there's rulemaking process which was clearly was not really envisioned by the founders um there's uh it's it's really quite remarkable how big the federal government has gotten, still using the old Constitution, um, which really had very little um, foresight in connection with uh, how that would happen. So back in the 30s, the um, United States Supreme Court was striking down um, various um, delegations of authority by Congress. So that's what they do. Congress passes a law. And it says, you know, there shall be the um, FDA, the Federal and Drug Administration. We're going to create it. This person's going to be appointed by the president. We're going to give it X number of dollars. Its job is like this big mission statement. And then the FDA goes on its way. And then it has rulemaking authority. So there's a process to make the rules. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, nope, that's unconstitutional. It's not provided for in. Uh, the Constitution, the way that you're delegating this authority, and then um, the Supreme Court changed its decision making and said, "Well, as long as there's Congress is passing a law that allows the administrator to have some articulable um, criteria by which they're passing and performing their duties, then that delegation is okay." So you can't say Congress can't say, "Mr. President, we give you all authority." To, to be to pass the law, right. that would be an unconstitutional delegation of authority. But it can say, Mister President, uh, we're going to delegate to your administrative agency uh, regulation of uh, food and drugs, and uh, for health and safety reasons. And we'll give you some broad criteria, and as long as you're filling within that broad, fulfilling that within the broad criteria, you're constitutional. So that's the state of law now. There is some serious concern that's been expressed by Justice Gorsuch, Gorsuch and others on the Supreme Court about the viability of that, and whether or not that should should continue to be the law. And that would be fascinating to see uh, the developments. There's been actually a lot of litigation about administrative authority. Recently, a number of the Trump initiatives were struck down because they weren't done in compliance with the administrator procedures act which is how how you're supposed to pass a rule and then there's now Biden's attempt to undo things that Trump put into place is also being gummed up by the same so it's it's a bipartisan issue um it it'll, it'll be it'd be really fascinating to see if the supreme court event if they go as far as has been suggested by Gorsuch and um that perhaps we need, you know, that they would rethink this whole idea Mm -hmm. of the delegation doctrine. In Michigan, um, Governor Whitmer passed an executive order locking down um, the state because of COVID and the Michigan Supreme Court struck that down because she did it under an emergency act Mm -hmm. that was passed in 1945. This was not an emergency act for COVID that had been passed by the legislature. It was an old act And it basically said, in times of emergency, the governor can be, um, have huge authority and to to be able to do uh, emergency um, uh, actions in in times of crisis. And the Supreme Court said, that's an unconstitutional delegation of authority and struck it down. Um, uh, So there's some movement in the States and it'd be interesting to see if that spreads in the States as well. And, or in the, in the higher court.
0: Right. Well, one of the things I always am sort of concerned about is uh, one of the, the more say pertinent examples as of late was when Trump was president, he passed famously the, the right to try legislation and the right to try legislation basically enabled people who were suffering from cancer or, 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 real significant ailments to be able to try experimental drugs FDA had not yet approved. And, but it had basically no impact because the the FDA essentially admitted and they released a statement basically saying that we don't like this program. Um, They didn't say exactly like that, but that that was, that was the the clear intent. We don't like this program. We have our own program for experimental drugs. Um, And so pharmaceutical companies, don't want to run afoul of the fda <laughs> be, by by trying to you know uh, uh, allow their experimental drugs through this right to try legislation because they know that on the back end when they want to you know when they need fda approval for a future drug they're you know the fda is going to remember that and they'll be blacklisted in sent in a sense or, or be harshly criticized and so you yeah, have the president of the united states doing something and then <laughs> because of the fda um he almost sort of subverts his, his authority to, to be able to, uh, you know, have legislation impact people. Right. Um, and so that, that's, and, and you can point to numerous examples, obviously with, you know, the NSA, for example, uh, famously, uh, lied to Congress about, uh, their spying activities. And so all these things sort of concern me from, from a, macro perspective and in terms of the power the administrative state has um is there any is there any sort of solution to that other than you know a president saying that he's going to like cut certain staff members or like reduce budgets is it is there anything from through the judicial perspective i mean you mentioned gorsuch like can you illuminate that a little bit in terms of things that can that can be done to counteract this insane levels of, of authority uh, that there that these administrative states are these administrative agencies are uh, effectuating
1: so the I would say the first thing and the, and the most effective thing would be that Congress actually do its job mm-hmm. and pass legislation that they read and pass legislation that um, Takes responsibility and accountability for the policies that they're passing. And there has been, for a generation, if not longer, uh, Congress ducking the responsibility of uh, passing policy uh, and instead saying, you know, we're going to kick this, we're going to create an EPA. environmental protection agency or the national security agency or whatever
0: though if 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 congress were to take the lead on these issues how would they have time to attend the met gala and and be on live stream on twitch
1: (laughs) they have to balance these things right you have to balance well (laughs) this is what i would say um article 1 section 8 of the constitution lists enumerated powers that congress is limited to And if you read that list, that list is really short. And um, the founders did not expect that list to exponentially grow and to subsume much of what we call the police power that the states have. So the typical police power is health, safety, um, education, family matters, all those things were supposed to be left to the states. That's what the 10th amendment says. That's how the design of the Constitution works. And now we have, uh, there's no question that even the most visionary, adamant nationalist, um, I I guess I shouldn't say no question. I I don't think there's any question. I might be wrong, but I haven't seen anything from Alexander Hamilton who I'd put in their camp or his allies that say, you know, we can't wait for the federal government to to go into all these things that the federal government has now gone into and so it would really have to be a peering of congress saying we're only going to do the things that are obviously in the constitution and we're actually going to do those things so my position would be that to return to the kind of the founding vision you would you would really need both those things so that congress would have to say you know uh, we shouldn't be involved in a, I'll, pick, I'll just say this because it was recommended by uh, then-Governor Perry. He said we should get rid of the Department of Education. That's something that has been bantied about for many years. So, you know, education's not in that list. Uh, we spend a lot of money on education from the federal level. Um, if we got out of education, then there'd be more time to spend on other matters, which um, are actually in, in, in specifically enumerated in the Constitution Article 1, Section 8. Um, there's been a, a number of things that have come together that have allowed the federal government to grow. One is the, they uh, increased the income tax or the, uh, made constitutional income tax, and right. they brought in a lot of revenue. The 17th Amendment changed how US senators are elected. They used to be elected by the state legislatures, and that was a check for federal growth. Um, there were lots of problems with it, but there was a check on federal growth. If you knew that the federal government was gonna, you know, if the Texan senators knew that the federal government wanted to do things that Texas didn't like, uh, they were gonna be more responsive knowing that their job rested on the state legislature versus the, tech, the people of Texas, We were less concerned about the structure issues and more concerned about the outcomes. So you, these are progressive reforms, old-fashioned progressives. Right. Um, and so those things combined with the Supreme Court backing off on the administrative state issues, as well as having a very expansive view of what commerce is. And commerce is one of those areas that they are, it's a numerated power that they can regulate. Basically, it means any economic activity. So when you combine all those things together, all of a sudden we have a big, big federal government. Right. Founders right. couldn't. Vision the income tax, mm-hmm. the, the changing of the meaning of Commerce Clause. Uh, you know it's very clear how that you know there's a how it originally was interpreted and how it's now interpreted, um, and uh, you know the, the 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 17th Amendment. They that's not what they designed, and so right. it's no it's no mystery that it's very different than what mm-hmm. we have. So th- the first thing would be to have the the Congress. Kind of go back to the original understanding of enumerated powers and of the commerce power, and then um, and do and take responsibility for what they're supposed to, and do it well. The, on, on the judicial side, you know, it, it would, Supreme Court would have to change its jurisprudence, and find that uh, delegation um, has to be either <clears throat> much more tightly defined. Mm-hmm or just say it's unconstitutional. Um, I think there's more of a likelihood of the first than the second. Uh, I, I, I don't <clears throat> just looking at a crystal ball, which I don't have, I'd just be surprised Supreme Court said you can't delegate authority anymore. But they might say, you got to do it really well. And uh, a lot of statutes might not survive. And then Congress might say, this is a real stretch. Well, if we can't delegate anymore, if we have to go through the process of making a really good delegation, we might as well just actually pass the law that we think is appropriate as opposed to delegating. So, you know, there's, there's that chance, uh, but that's really up to uh, the Supreme Court. Right.
0: That makes sense. The um, sort of off of that, the, one of the, the big issues obviously to uh, this last week has been this essentially vaccine mandate by the Biden administration. And, and again, uh, cognizant of, the, of your uh, ethical responsibilities as a judicial officer when it comes to uh, present matters and cases that may come up, um, I, I would like you to sort of analyze it. I'll, I'll give my perspective, and then you can sort of analyze the uh, how, how you think it will go. So basically, so after Biden said that he doesn't believe a vaccine mandate is is possible, it's not the role of the federal government, uh, he finagled the vaccine mandate through another way, which is through OSHA, a uh, ministry of agency. And OSHA, the way they they got OSHA to be able to implement this is by, for uh, companies with employees over 100 people, is through the rulemaking authorities under a uh, what an emergency temporary standard. So this allows OSHA to bypass the usual rulemaking process, uh, which entails public hearings and an opportunity for notice and and comment and all that. And it allows OSHA to basically have something apply immediately. The problem is this uh, ETS, Emergency Temporary Standard, um, is limited. It requires special justification and it's limited in situations where uh, to protect employees from, quote, grave danger, by quote new hazards or by exposure to substance or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful now my opinion is that the there's no justification under this this current situation because the pandemic has been with us for two years it's not an emergency situation uh, it's not doesn't fit under this this guideline of being a grave danger of a toxic uh, new hazard. Um, so, so the, the OSHA rule doesn't apply. And the fact, the, the track record for this emergency standard uh, six of the nine times it has been tried. It's been basically overturned by the court. Um, how, how, how do you see this, this uh, vaccine mandate issue playing out? So
1: the first thing I would say um... we we have to go back to first principles so um, we have established a constitution that is based on a separation of powers we do not have a king we have a president president elected by the people through electoral college Um, we have a legislative branch which is supposed to pass the law and we have an executive excuse me judicial branch which is supposed to interpret the law strike down any unconstitutional acts of either the legislature or the executive and to um, make sure that everybody understands what the law means to resolve controversies. So the first question, when the president um, or OSHA, uh, through the pre, you know the president through OSHA, makes uh, a, a a rule like this, is does he have a statutory basis or a constitutional basis on his own to do this? So the president's the commander in chief. He's the principal. Diplomat. Um, he has uh, a variety of other roles, uh, you know, State of the Union, those kinds of things. He does not have, as far as I can tell, nobody's pointed out to me, a authority under Health and Safety to impose a federal mandate uh, beyond uh, federal employees. There might be a role there for federal employees because he's the executive; he's in charge of federal employees, but not for beyond, not private citizens. So I haven't heard that argument be made. So he doesn't have an independent constitutional authority. So then you have to go to the Congress and say, okay, where is the authority there? So he's using, at least my understanding, based on the media, is he's using this OSHA Act. The OSHA Act then has this rule. So the next question becomes, is the OSHA Act itself constitutional? Actually usually they look at the statute first they'll look at it statutorily they'll say um, is what he's doing permitted under the OSHA Act So and the question becomes as you point out, you know does this rule make emergency rulemaking authorities is this fit within that? And um, you would have to look at has this been um, reviewed in the past what how have courts interpreted this law does this, Virus, COVID issue, somehow link into that text, and then if it does, then you get to look at is the rule has the rule been properly promulgated under the act? Because it might have been it might not actually. You could have these administrative agencies often pass acts that may actually be unrelated to their their delegated authority. Um, so then, if the answer was yes, that yes, it does fall under OSHA, and they didn't go beyond their delegated authority, then the question becomes: Did Congress overdelegate or violate the Constitution by creating OSHA and giving this authority over to OSHA? So there, it has to survive a lot of different levels of scrutiny. Um, it has to survive um, whether or not it falls within the rule. Is the rule constitute? Is the rule under the act, and then is the act constitutional? I've heard some um, legal commentators say it's absolutely constitutional. That you know, under current jurisprudence, Congress has this authority to create OSHA, and under current delegation authority, OSHA can pass this kind of act, <coughs> and that the act is broad enoughly worded that this mandate falls within it i've heard other commentators say this is lunacy that it doesn't fit within the act or it doesn't fit within the rule because the rule isn't designed for a disease it's not an emergency those kinds of things and then other people said and even if it is it doesn't fall within osha because that's not what osha is about if osha is now about diseases well that's not what osha was designed for right so the rule is wrong and then others would say, and by the way, it's an unconstitutional delegation. So depending on where the votes fall in, you might have a very fractured opinion or you might have everybody on the same page. Um, you know, John Roberts has tried very hard as our chief justice to protect the insti- what he views as the institutional integrity of the court. So he likes to have unified decisions. He's very reluctant to have constitutional decisions that um, change kind of the status quo at least that's my reading uh, so um, it'll be interesting to see if he's able to cobble together because this has got to go to the Supreme Court a I would think I'd be surprised if it doesn't right. um, you know cobble together a majority opinion that somehow um, addresses this without threatening the the integrity of the court um, and it, it's it, it's a it's a real um, the I, I guess the there's two counterweights here that we might weigh on that kind of decision. One is that if the court really does perceive it as an emergency, they do not like to override the political branches of government. And the example I would use is Korematsu, where there was Jap- internment of Japanese Americans on the West Coast based on a military order that was passed uh, in relation to a congressional act uh, or a or Franklin Delano Roosevelt's order—I can't remember which at the time—might have been both. Um, and the court said bravely, you know, 60 years later, that Japanese internment violated the equal protection clause. You know, they waited 60 years
0: mm-hmm.
1: th- to reverse that case. Okay, so there could be—and uh, and I, I don't mean to be disrespectful to my brethren—but there are times when there's a crisis. And the judiciary just does not want to wade into it. They want it to be settled by the political branches. And so they find every way they can to not have to make a decision that overthrows what the political branches right. have done. On the other side of that is that if that's constitutional, if, the, if, if one president with a stroke of a pen can declare an emergency and mandate for tens of millions, if not, I don't know, it's 80 million, whatever it is, Tens of millions of people that they must do this, then there some would say there was no limit anymore to the Constitution. That we have blown up the 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 the, uh, the constitutional limitations around presidential power and congressional power and enumerated powers. That's that's all gone because they'll always be able to find some creative way to have an emergency rule that will override the clear and obvious restrictions of the federal government. And if you, again, if you look at enumerated powers, there isn't a health and safety power. So they're trying to do this through interstate commerce. Mm -hmm. Um, The Supreme Court um, in the first Obamacare case, I think it was the first one, ruled that you could not compel commerce because Obama was saying, the Obama administration was saying, You have to buy, there's an individual mandate, you have to buy health insurance because it affects the health insurance market. And the Supreme Court said uh, no, you cannot compel people to engage in commerce. There was uh, an act uh, many years ago that was the Violence Against Women Act. And uh, there was some kind of perfunctory congressional findings that how violence against women affected interstate commerce and the Supreme Court said No, you can't uh, ban violence against women through the Commerce Clause. That's not commerce. That's criminal behavior. So you could see this case going either way for a variety of different reasons. Uh, It will be one of the most fascinating cases that uh, we'll have in this generation. But it strikes so fundamentally at the um, authority of the court and the limits of the constitution that if, um, if that action is affirmed, then we're talking a whole new ballgame with regard to the federal government's ability, because it's a regulation. It's not Mm -hmm. spending. It's not saying we're going to spend, you know, we're going to buy 80 million masks and give it to people for free. It's like, it's not like the, the vaccine, which, which I've had, I got no problem getting it. I was pleased to have it, uh, you know, spending money to distribute, it's not that, it's right. ordering people to do something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that usually is, you know, a, there's a significant um, increase in authority if that is affirmed, especially when you're talking about, I suppose you don't have to get, you know, you can be tested, but a test is an intrusive procedure Obviously, getting vaccinated is an intrusive procedure. Uh, So it's not just, you know, don't do something. It's do something. It's another step. It's Mm -hmm. not like saying um, you're you're banned from blowing up a building as a terrorist. It's you must either test. You have to do something. It's compelling you to do something, which, you know, there's also an argument. I, I just thought of it. You know, Thirteenth Amendment, no involuntary servitude. Someone could say, "You're forcing me to do something. You're not paying me to do it. Um, why isn't this involuntary servitude?" So it, it it raises all kinds of fascinating issues.
0: Right, absolutely. And and um, like I said, it it could, it'll lead to a precedent for um, all sorts of future actions by federal government, uh, which will go way beyond what we thought was within constitutional limits. I um, mean you could see a a situation where uh you know they they justify something under climate change you know that that this is a uh emergency situation because climate change is is here and and it's it's causing a temperature rise globally, so therefore this action is justified under that so absolutely it causes a very dangerous precedent um with respect, i want to ask you a couple more things so uh n- another sort of hot button issue is the Texas abortion law. It, it came uh, before the Supreme Court, so that the background of it was uh, Texas passing a abortion law um, that basically prohibited abortions uh, once you could detect cardiac activity from the fetus, basically around six weeks. And the, the, the interesting way that it's enforced is basically instead of being enforced from state officials, it allows any person to sue any person who performs post-heartbeat abortions or who age or abets them. And prevailing plaintiffs are promised at least $10,000 of statutory damages per abortion. So this was sort of designed to um, prevent certain um, challenges against, against the law. Uh, when The Supreme Court basically um, declined to um, strike it down. Um and, and they stressed basically uh looks like a looks like they, they declined on on procedural grounds. Uh could you sort of um elucidate the the situation for us with respect to what the Supreme Court said and and where this case is 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 likely to
1: go. Yeah, so the what, what happened was the Supreme Court as you said decline they didn't decide to strike to not strike down the law right, right they decided not to take the case to stop it from coming into effect and um that's different than a finding on the merits mm-hmm. and in fact the order says we do not make a ruling on the merits This is unusual in the sense that many uh, restrictions against abortion are often stopped by um, a court before they take effect. And the Supreme Court often weighs in on that, um, saying that that decision uh, is appropriate um, and, and holds the act from stopping to become effective until there's a litigation about the case and whether or not the abortion restriction uh, is constitutional. Now, we have um, in the country a um, jurisprudence which is somewhat murky about the right to an abortion. But basically, there's a recognized right to have an abortion and that the, no uh, state can impose or a federal government can impose what's called an undue burden on that right what an undue burden is has been murky right um and so you know some things are not undue burdens and other things are um this texas law is very unusual because uh, it's very clever i'm not sure for the good or for the ill but it's very clever because it's not enforced by governmental authorities. It's enforced by civil litigants. So, and apparently anybody, I'm not sure if it's just people from Texas or anybody, can say, um, can sue to stop someone from obtaining an abortion, or at least they can sue the providers that would, the medical providers, uh, that would perform the abortion. And so, um, and if they do successfully stop somebody, they get a ten thousand dollar. The people that oppose it call it a bounty, and they say they're bounty hunters. I don't sure what's the phraseology in the legislation, but they get ten thousand mm-hmm. bucks. So, an incentive to to do this. Normally, when uh, up until this point, when an anti-abortion law has been passed, uh, or a pro-life law has been passed. Um, it's enforced by the government. And so you know who to sue and you can get an injunction uh, against it from coming into effect. Here, you don't, who do you sue? You sell, sue everybody in the state of Texas. Right, right. You know, so um, there's, there's this enforcement issue. Now on the other side of it, um, you know, the, someone could say, well, I'm gonna ban uh, handguns in the state of Texas. And we're not going to let the government enforce that. We're going to let private people enforce that. So you can sue somebody that has a gun, a handgun, and you get $10,000. So you always got to look at it both ways. You know, do you really, is that a, is this clever mechanism something you really want to have in the law forever? Because maybe Texas is going to pass that law, but New York City might. Um, they already tried to do something very similar to that. So... Um, whether or not the courts see to say put that aside, or that's a new area of litigation, you know, it, it, it's going to be very complicated. But they haven't made a decision on the merits. And the way that I see this happening, one way, there, there's others, is that somebody finally s- s- sues uh, one of the operators or an individual that wants an abortion, and then there's an emergency hearing. And then there will be some kind of decision that comes out about whether or not uh, the heartbeat law is via, is an undue burden. Right, or not. right. going back to the uh,
0: Casey decision, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen this? This is a very interesting mechanism. Have you seen this play out before? Uh, this this sort of
1: enforcement. I, I have not. I mean, there are there are areas. Uh, there's one area in Michigan that's a little funky, where. Um, there's a termination of parental rights. So if somebody is neglectful or abusing their child, the state can come in and terminate the rights. But private people can also do that. Um, which um, when I only did family law for one year, uh, but I was always surprised. It didn't happen a lot, but I'd get a case where some you know, interested person you know, wants to terminate the rights of. Um, an individual. And so th- I've seen it there. You could also, a uh, civil commitment of um, mentally ill people is usually brought not by the state, but by a relative, mm-hmm. um, you know, where they, they say, you know, my father or my brother or whatever is going to hurt himself. And they, they go to court and they petition the court uh, for that commitment. So those things do happen right, right. in other areas whether or not that changes the constitutional analysis I, I don't know I haven't given mm-hmm. yeah, I haven't, no. thought, yeah.
0: As, as I said that I was just reminded of in California you can uh, a private citizen can sue uh, employers uh, for things like wage violations and things of that nature on behalf of the state and enforce it um, so that that's somewhat of a corollary uh, the, the the last question I have for you is is regarding the issue with big tech Facebook Google etc. Um, this is obviously going, this is currently and will be one of the most hot button issues for next several years. And we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Um, there are, there are two components to it. It's actually bipartisan in, in, in drawing ire from both sides, but institutions like Facebook and Google, there's the, there's an antitrust aspect, which, which finds that entities like Google, um, are basically using their, their market power to, um, hurt consumers by destroying other competitors. Um, there is, uh, and, and also, you know, Facebook as well. Uh, there is issues from the right wing, which basically, uh, deemed that these, these institutions are playing the role as almost quasi quasi state quasi government actors. They're obviously, uh, you know, Democratic politicians, for example, have told Facebook and Google and Twitter what to do under testimony, and, and have threatened them, um, and then they've gone and, and and done certain things uh, in terms of pro- prohibiting certain people from the platform. So you can find state action there. Uh, there's also the concept of of them, uh, you know, being the the marketplace, uh, being the sort of central central uh, town square, for example. Um, there are people who think that they can be regulated as as utilities, and maybe that's the answer to sort of stop their ability to discriminate uh, against people if they're regulated more like like uh, public utilities. And and that entails, you know, uh, prohibitions on being able to discriminate against certain people and, and, and how they can operate and things of that nature. How do you how do you sort of um, see the the merits of the arguments against big tech from both a maybe a um, antitrust corporate perspective and also from a um you know them acting as a quasi quasi government and they're therefore you know they have to abide by the the first amendment uh how, how do you make sense of of all this
1: i'll tell you this is one of the most fascinating issues that we have come across and what we um you know, the law is usually a laggard. The technology, it, as is morality and ethics. So the technology often outstrips um, the ability of the law or ethics more, more or moralists to get a, theologians as well to get a hold of what's going on. So here is, is one of those circumstances. One easy way to look at this is that despite all of its market power and despite um, its dominance at this moment, The bottom line is social media is still private-owned. It's uh, And that they should have the ability, like any other privately-owned institution, to determine the content of what what happens on their their platforms. And that there's these user agreements that people are expected to follow. And if Facebook doesn't want to post pro-Trump stuff, that's their constitutional right. In fact, it would be unconstitutional to force them to um, to have to foster speech they don't like. You know, if it would be like me saying to uh, to you, Ashton Cohen. You know, you have to host now that you've had Judge Warren. Now you have to have uh, a, a, jur- a jurist who is very very um, progressive uh, and explain their position. We used to have that with the FCC. We used to have a rule on TV that you'd have to have, you have to carry certain content, and you had to have a balanced view because the airwaves were a public utility because there was there, there was finite. The FCC would issue uh, you a, light, a, a channel or a license to broadcast, <coughs> but because it was really the public airwaves, um, you had the responsibility to carry both sides. They got rid of that um, several years ago and let, because of cable TV and other developments, and now that's why you have Fox News versus MSNBC, right? Because they don't have to follow the fairness doctrine, that's what that was called, or other requirements. In the cyber world, um, they would say there's this unlimited bandwidth That you could have, you know, there are um, other opportunities for conservatives or communists or fascists, you know, whatever it is, to create their own platform and you shouldn't force them to, uh, you know, just because one's particularly big and they're successful doesn't mean that you have, you require them to um, have to carry content they don't agree with. Of course, the reality was there was parlor for like a nanosecond, because everybody said, well, oh, create your own network if you want to. They did and they shut it down, they being you know, the service entities. So you see that and you go, okay, well, maybe these folks um, are the new public square. And the public square means that you, you can't have what's called content-based restrictions. Mm-hmm. So if you go on um, a, a park that's a public park, um, you can have what's called time, place, and manner restrictions, and you can't give right. speeches at midnight with big, huge, blaring speakers, but you can go there, you know, between uh, noon and eight, and you can't, if you're going to let anybody speak there, then anybody can speak there. You can't deprive them based on their content. So You can't say, well, you know, we're, we only want Republicans to speak here or Libertarians or Green Party people. You can't restrict if you allow anybody to speak um so there's been some you know th- that's that's going to be the real question is um are the um the platforms like facebook and twitter mm-hmm. um and and others are they so big and so dominant that they in essence are m- becoming the new public square right or are they more like the mall because mm-hmm. there are some mall- Back in the seven, I, some people don't even remember the rumors back before Amazon and all that stuff you'd go and Michigan is the, the birthplace really of the modern mall movement, the, the closed in structure, because it's so cold in the winter. Um, that you, you'd go into the mall and that's where most people went to shop. And so people would start handing out literature. And there were lawsuits over that and the, at one point there was a ruling that said, well, they're the new public square. So the mall owners lost control over mm-hmm. what could be distributed. That was reversed and it was determined uh, you know, now and forevermore, uh, at least as of now, that um, m- mall owners don't lose their ability to um, control the content. And so they can kick people out if they're, you know, just the Hare Krishna's or something like that, trying to
0: right, right, evangelize.
1: Right, right. So. And so in um, airports, which is a public entity, mm-hmm. most of them, they even said there they can have these restrictions so um unless there's a real change in jurisprudence and there could very well be but unless that gets changed i think it would be hard for a court to rule that um they've morphed into a, a public utility so public utility is um you know your water your electrical whatever
0: essential services Yeah. just because you're
1: a nazi doesn't mean you don't get electricity right Right. yeah everybody gets gets their um their their utilities and so the theory is well social media is the new utility um and it's so essential uh to um, modern life that it's just like electricity or water service and i'll tell you for the kids that i talked to this morning the eighth graders there's no question they view it that right, way, right? right. This right, stuff right. is like part of their identities and their lives. It's central to that. Mm-hmm. You know, for other people, like my parents, they don't even have Facebook. So right. it's not essential. Right. So it, it's a really interesting uh, issue that, that the court will have to grapple with.
0: It is interesting. So one, one way to look at it is, is Facebook, which has one third of uh, all humans on earth on its platform, right? <laughs> so it's something to over 2 billion accounts. Right. Um, and then you add an Instagram as well, which it also owns is that more like <laughs> is that more like a uh a modern town square or is that more like a mall you know and i I, th- I think if you look at it that way it seems it seems to be more of the former um and as far as it's it's being essential these um yeah i mean it would be interesting I, th- I think so uh kennedy in in uh when he was in the Supreme court uh mentioned this in his dicta. Uh, basically saying that well these are private NDS but they're not like your typical private NDS. Thomas has hinted at this as well uh, in in Supreme Court decisions, and I'm immediately reminded of I think it was March versus Alabama, where it was like a company town back when company towns were kind of a thing, and right. the Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses were putting up uh, you know their religious literature on the town bulletin board, and the i forgot the entity in question the company was like well no you can't do that and the supreme court said no actually you guys are kind of acting like a you know you're uh, as a state actor you're you're quasi government actor in this situation and so you can't prohibit them you're 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 bound by the first amendment as well i think that i haven't seen that argument made as much um i don't know if you have thoughts on that but i think that's that that kind of approach seems to make sense to me as a corollary
1: Well, it's that's a that is a very interesting case, and um, in some cases, are what we call sui sui generis, which Mm is on to itself. It's unique and um, might not really have application to others. And uh, some people like to talk about um, any case involving the Amish, right? Because they're they're so sympathetic, Mm -hmm. and you. You're trying to they're trying to protect the lifestyle of the Amish. And so they get like these special exemptions, which would never apply to anybody else, but they're the Amish. Right. Um, the t- one could argue that the the town, the company town is like that. That it's so rare. And that it's it's really so unique that it isn't good precedent for other places. And so if you live in a town that's owned by a company, everything is owned by the company, the homes, the, the stores, right. the roads, the whatever, then it in essence has become the government and therefore this kind of ruling applies. Um, so I think, I mean, the argument is there and it, it could it could be made uh, that, um, but it would almost be as if, I think it would be a much stronger argument if you had one entity that controlled all the internet and that, I mean, it probably existed in the past, right? You have one entity- It's that arguably was, Google,
0: you know? I mean, if you really think about them being like the gateway to the internet for- Yeah, but you have DuckDuckGo, oh,
1: I use DuckDuckGo, I don't use- you know. So, so is that
0: like a 3% market share though?
1: You got it, so- <laughs> Uh, but there's nothing stopping yeah. you from doing that. So if, if if the internet was owned by one entity and there was only one social media platform, much stronger argument for the company town mm-hmm. than um, a lot of different platforms with uh, you know the, the government really used to really create the internet. I think now it's in a whole bunch of different people's hands. So I'm not saying it's... Uh, it's it's a credible argument but i don't know that it would it would carry the day Mm -hmm.
0: yeah i I think there are a couple more um there are a couple that was just sort of what what i was reminded of i think there are probably a couple more uh more compelling areas that you could draw a link to including you know uh, examples of democratic legislatures uh you know telling facebook and google this is what you gotta do and then they do it and then holding to the the standard well you know, a, a government telling a private corporation to do something that the government can't otherwise do, you know, maybe an example state action. I'm still sort of looking, you know, I'm, I'm still sort of educating myself on on the different ways because it is complex it's unique, uh, and it's unique and it's very interesting.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So it will be, I, you know, I don't think the Supreme Court has uh, anywhere near resolved uh, you know, I, I don't think we can read any tea leaves, I mm-hmm. guess, on this and, and make a decision about how this is all going to turn out. I think that's true. Yeah, that's true. right.
0: Well, Michael, thanks so much uh, for being on. This is a real pleasure to have you on. I think you really illuminated so many concepts that are just, you don't really hear about on on the news. You only hear about snippets, you know, oh, Texas just passed this law and it's it's uh, unconscious. You don't really get in depth on, 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 in terms of why did the Supreme Court do this? You know, what, What's the real situation? What's the real jurisprudence underlying this? What are the, the concepts underlying it? Um, which is why I think these, these sort of podcasts are so helpful. So I really appreciate you coming on. Well, uh, where, where can people find you?
1: So uh, a, a few places. The book is, uh, again, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide or Reclaiming Our First Principles in History. And you can find that at americasurvivalguide.com. Uh, or at uh, Amazon or any other um, on t- online re- retailer. If you happen to be in Michigan, I'll s- sign it for you in person. Uh, but again, that's Survival Guide.com. PatriotWeek.org is um, a, an initiative that goes from 9-11 to 9-17. So we're recording this on 9-17, which is Constitution Day, where we celebrate our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots and flags from our history. It's all about civics and American history. Uh, with a, a lot of law interlaced there, so your viewers and listeners might be interested in that. And that's PatriotWeek.org. Um, you can also reach out to me directly at m as a Michael Warren W A R R E N at PatriotWeek.org. Um, I do have a Facebook page. Uh, so Michael Warren on Facebook is LinkedIn Michael Warren on LinkedIn, um, as well as uh, Twitter, which I don't use as much because you can't have these kind of conversations on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can certainly reach out.
0: (laughs) Right. And I'll put those in in the show notes. So uh, excellent. Well, thanks so much for being
1: on. You're welcome. My pleasure. God bless you and God bless America. You too. If you
0: enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening. And we will be back next week.